Now, that brings us now to the second division here. Chapter 2, and I go back to my timetable of the book of Jonah. In chapter 1, he left Israel. His destination was Nineveh, but he landed in the fish. And now chapter 2, he's going to leave the fish. Of course, his destination is still Nineveh, and he'll land on the dry land. But we want to see the experience that this man now has inside of the fish. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly. Now, immediately, someone is going to say to me, you believe that Jonah was dead inside of the fish and that God raised him from the dead. I certainly believe that. But somebody's going to say, it says Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly. That means he was alive inside of the fish. It sure does. But my question is, when did Jonah pray that prayer? Did he pray this prayer that we have here? Did he pray it when he first got into the fish? In other words, when the fish swallowed him and finally he went flop down in the tummy of the fish, is that when he prayed it? Or did Jonah, after he got inside the fish, did he say to himself, well, I'm really here in a precarious position, and things sure don't look good for me. So I want to prepare a prayer that will send to God, and he'll hear and answer it. And so Jonah decided that he would write out his prayer. And he worked on it for a couple of days. Then on the third day, why, he memorized it, and then he gave the prayer. Now, if he did that, then my interpretation of this is all wrong. I'm all wet, if you please. Jonah got wet also, but I get wet too if he waited that long. But my friends, if I know human nature at all, I don't think he waited very long to pray that prayer. When that man found himself in the condition he's in, we're going to see what it was. You can be sure of one thing, that he immediately went to prayer before God. He prayed. In fact, I think he prayed on the way down, and the time he got to the fish's tummy, it was time for amen. But let me illustrate this, that men don't pray in time of a crisis a prepared prayer. They get down to business immediately when the crisis comes. A friend of mine who was in the ministry was a pastor in Somerville, Tennessee, for several years. He had a finger off, his index finger on his right hand, was cut off. Nothing left there but just a stub. It is cut off below the first joint. And when anyone would ask him how he was called to the ministry or what his call was, he'd hold up that little stub of a finger and wiggle it. And naturally, people would ask him, well, what do you mean by that? And he'd tell them this story. He said, when I was a boy... My father was an officer in the church, and an evangelist came to the church to hold meetings. Well, he said the first night that he preached, my dad made me sit on the front row. And I want to tell you, he says, the preacher made that seat very hot for me because I knew he was talking at me, although he didn't know that he was. And he said I was made to go the second night, and he said, you know, I knew that if I stayed there, I would not only accept Christ as my Savior, but I would also give my life to enter the ministry. Because he said, I had a feeling that that would be my call. So he said that night, after everybody went to bed, he said, I got my extra shirt and my pajamas, and I went down the drain pipe because he slept upstairs. And he said, I ran off down to Mississippi. And I got a job in a sawmill. And I do not know whether many of you folk acquainted with the old-time sawmill where you took 
a great hook and you would roll the logs over on the carriage and that carriage would take the log that was rolled on down to the big saw that was there and would rip that log right down through the middle or however they wanted to rip it. And he said that his job was to roll those logs on. And he said after he worked there for a few weeks, well, he was working one afternoon and they ran out of logs. So the foreman got some old logs that they had had there, had not run them through because some of them, for one reason or another, they rejected. And he said there was one log that had been ripped about halfway. And for some reason, they hadn't finished it and they just pulled it back out. He says, when I rolled that log over on the carriage that carried it into the bandsaw, that place where it had been ripped opened up. And he says, when it did, my finger, my index finger on my right hand got caught in it. And I felt myself being pulled along that carriage toward that big bandsaw. And he said, you know, I began to yell at the top of my voice. But he says, by the time I started yelling, the other end of the log had hit the saw and it was already going through. And if you've ever been around a sawmill, you know that makes a terrible racket. Nobody could hear him. And he was just yelling at the top of his voice and frightened and found himself being pulled against his will right into that saw. And the thing that happened, it said it took about 45 seconds for him to get to the saw. He said what happened was when... He got there, of course, the finger was way out in front, caught in this place between where it had been sawed, and did clamp down tight on it. And he says, when my finger hit the saw, it cut my finger off. But he says, it released me, and I rolled to the side and didn't have to go through. Now, he said, in that 45 seconds, for he says, that's all it took for a log to go through. He says, in that 45 seconds, I prayed to the Lord. He said, I accepted Christ as my Savior. I promised him I'd go into the ministry and do his will. And he said, I told him a lot of other things. He said, you know, I told him more in 45 seconds at that time than I've ever told him in an hour's prayer since then. And may I say to you, he prayed that prayer immediately when the crisis came. Because that's when I pray, that's when you pray. You don't wait in time of an emergency. I know on a plane, when we got in unusually rough weather, and I don't even like it in good weather, and this rough weather was terrific. The minute that that plane began to drop, or did drop, it seemed to me like it wasn't going to quit dropping. I began to pray. I didn't say, well, I'm going to wait until we're off of the plane, and I'm going to wait till we get out of this storm at least to pray. I began right there and then, and I'm sure you do, and I'm almost sure that Jonah did. So Jonah prayed this prayer as he went down from the mouth of the fish through the esophagus, and by the time he said, plunk when he dropped into the fish's tummy, this man Jonah had already completed his prayer, and he'd said, Amen. And I think he prayed a great deal more than's recorded here. I think we have the abridged edition of it. Now, we're going to look at this prayer, and we have now Jonah here. He is inside the fish. And I read again, verse 1, then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly and said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me out of the belly of Sheol, is the way it is in the New Schofield Reference Bible. That certainly is accurate, for that's the original word. But 
that word is translated in many places by the word grave. Other places, the unseen world where the dead go. This is a word that any way you look at it, it has to do with death. This is a word that always goes to the cemetery. And you couldn't take this word anywhere else. And he says, out of the belly of Sheol or out of the belly of the grave. Now, I don't know what your interpretation is, but my interpretation of what Jonah's saying is that the belly of the fish was his grave. And a grave is a place for the dead. You don't put a live man in a grave. And I think that he recognized he was going to die inside of that fish and that God would hear him and raise him from the dead. Now, many years ago, I was still a student in seminary, and I was asked to supply my last year for a brief period of time. In fact, after I actually graduated, I stayed at the seminary till I finished my time at a little church. And the Westminster Presbyterian Church in Atlanta, Georgia, asked me if I would supply because they had had a big problem in the church and the pastor had left. And they figured a seminary student couldn't hurt them very much. Now, that church is the church that Peter Marshall became the pastor of. In fact, I preached there my last Sunday, and he preached the next Sunday. And he was kind enough to recommend me to that church as to be the pastor to follow him. But I wasn't about to follow a man like Peter Marshall, so I did not even consider the call to the church at all. But I was just a young student, and the Sunday evening service, I made it evangelistic. And I gave an invitation, and one night, several young people came forward. I was a young preacher at that time. And after the service, why, I had talked to several of them, and then I went to the rear of the church, and a young fellow was standing there, and he told me, he says, I'm a student at Georgia Tech. And I would like to accept Christ. I said, well, why didn't you come forward? Well, he says, I've got a hurdle. I've got a problem, and I can't get over it. We call it today a hang-up. Well, I said, what is it? He said, I just can't believe that a man could live three days and three nights inside of a fish. Well, I said, who told you that a man lived? Well, he says, I thought the Bible said so, and, and I know I've heard preachers say so. And I've got a professor at school. He just spends his time ridiculing that. And so I said to him, I said, well, my Bible doesn't say that he was alive. He said, you don't mean it. I said, I sure do. And I opened my Bible here to this second chapter and read it as I'm going to go over it with you today. And I said to him, to begin with, I said, this man, Jonah makes it very clear that the belly of the fish was his grave, and a grave's a place for the dead. And the young man said to me, you mean then that he died? I said, yes, I think that's a teaching. He said, well, then it means then that God raised him from the dead. I said, right, that's exactly what happened. This book teaches the resurrection of Christ. Well, then he says, that's a greater miracle than the other. I said, it sure is. And I take the greater miracle than keeping a man alive inside of a fish because that can be proved as having happened on several occasions, and I'll offer that proof next time. But the important thing to note here is that this man cried unto the Lord out of the fish's belly, and he said, out of the belly of hell, cried I, out of the belly of Sheol, out of the belly of the grave, cried I. And that's the place for the dead. And so Jonah felt like he was there to die and that that was his grave. And you must understand, he wrote this, not while he's inside of the fish, but afterward. Now, may I say there's some of you today that are not going to accept this. I have several letters already on this. We'll not accept your viewpoint. Well, I'm very much alone in this. However, the late Dr. DeHaan took this viewpoint. I wrote a book on it many years ago, and I was by myself. And then when Dr. DeHaan came out, why, 
I found out that many folk at that time, because they had confidence in him, they accepted that viewpoint. Now, if you hold the other viewpoint that he was alive, you go on with it. It's all right. God could keep him alive. That's not the question of the power of God. The question is, what did he really do? But don't hold that view to the extent that you rob a lot of young people from defending the Bible today. This young man went back to college and he told me that when the professor brought it up again, why, he said to the professor, who told you that Jonah was alive inside the fish? Well, he says, the Bible says so. And this young fellow said to him, says, not my Bible. And the man got the Bible out and they looked at it and they said they had a lot of trouble finding a Bible in Georgia Tech. But they finally found one, found out the man was really actually dead inside of the fish. Now, I want, first of all, to share with you a letter that's come to me from Austin, Texas, in this regard. And it reveals the viewpoint, of course, of the popular interpretation of it. And I'm reading now this letter. It says, "'Thank you for responding to my letter concerning Jonah.'" It is a mark of your dedication that you take time to answer such letters, since I'm sure you get many. I believe you're doing a fine work for the Lord, and in listening to you over the years, I think you're not getting older, but getting better. Well, may I say to you, I'm getting older, and you're not kidding me, and I'm not getting better. Now, let me continue. Your story about your fear of flying and how you conquered, it brings meaning to a living faith. But as far as Jonah goes, you are, I believe, putting in a private interpretation. You're straining the word to make it say something it doesn't say. May I go on to say the fact that Jonah lived three days in the whale's belly doesn't do any damage to the reference in Matthew 12, 39 and 40. Why don't you take your Bible and read it again? If we forget the chapter designation, it helps. Then he gives me, of course, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord, his God, out of the fish's belly. He said he guessed that Jonah did a lot of soul-searching during those three days. Now, it says if you interpret this passage like you do, you must believe the writer didn't have enough sense to put the story down in the sequence it occurred. And then he goes on to tell about the story that I use as illustration And then it says, you state that it is assumed that Jonah was alive. Well, I don't believe it is, but if you want to say that, I think your assumption is the greater assumption, and I hope you realize you're only assuming. My question to you is, why? Well, may I say, I appreciate that letter, and I recognize that the general interpretation, the popular interpretation is that Jonah was alive for three days and three nights inside of the fish, and that he had a very comfortable weekend inside of the fish tail instead of a motel. I don't think he could have been as comfortable as you'd be in a Howard Johnson or a Holiday Inn or a Ramada Inn or Royal Inn or any Hilton Hotel. But at least he had three days and three nights in there alive. In fact, when I was a little boy in Sunday school, they gave me a card on which Jonah was inside of the fish, and he had a table there, and he was sitting at the table. I don't know where that came from, but that was the way it was pictured. And that always, as a little fellow, disturbed me, because... I had trouble with that, and I must confess I did. Now, if you hold the viewpoint that this man holds, that Jonah was alive, you are with the majority today, and you are also with the majority of the expositors of the book of Jonah. And you can feel comfortable in being with the majority. 
Now, of course, if you want to be right, you would want to go along with me, I'm sure. But anyway, I want to make this point very carefully. It's not a question now of whether God was able to keep him alive or not inside of the fish. From my viewpoint, God could keep him alive. The question is, did God keep him alive? Is the miracle one of keeping him alive, or was the miracle in raising him from the dead? And since this book illustrates resurrection, I'm of the opinion God raised him from the dead. Now, it's not a question of the power of God. If I get to heaven and find out that Jonah was alive, and after I've had a little talk with him, some of you friends come around and say, I told you so, I will have to confess that I was wrong. And I'm not, as this man seems to think, that I'm taking an assumption and making a dogmatic statement. I'm not. But I am saying this, that I've had the privilege of teaching the book of Jonah on quite a few college campuses. Right here in Southern California, I taught it on the campus of USC, on the campus of UCLA. And I've had the privilege of teaching it, not directly on the campus, but to the Berkeley students at Cal in Berkeley. And I have found that this gives ammunition to young people today, and it gives them something to hold to. Now, if you belong to the old school and you want to hold to this, don't get enraged and become absolutely irritated with this viewpoint. You must recognize that this has been very helpful to a great many students today. And it has been the means, as we saw in the case of that Georgia Tech student years ago, it was the means of bringing him to a saving knowledge of Christ. And I personally believe this. I hold to this. Now, it's not a question of whether a man can live in a fish. Now, I want to give you today some illustrations of the fact that men have been swallowed by fish, whales, and they've lived to tell the story. And there's some remarkable stories. So that leads me to say this to you, that if you believe that Jonah was alive inside of the fish, that's not too great a miracle because of the fact other men have had that experience And I want to give you those. Many years ago here in Pasadena, when I first came here, there was a very excellent Bible teacher by the name of Miss Grace W. Kellogg. And she gave me her little book, The Bible Today, because she also held the old viewpoint that Jonah was alive inside of the fish. And she wanted me to see that Jonah could have been alive. And, of course, my point is, of course he could have been. If that's what God means, then I've really just misunderstood him and have rather misunderstood Jonah, and I'd certainly be willing to correct myself. But I'd like to give you a quotation now from Miss Grace Kellogg's book that it is possible for a man to be swallowed by a fish and live, and there are many examples of it. I'm going to give you a few of those that she gave. And I'm quoting now. There are at least two known monsters of the deep who could easily have swallowed Jonah. They are the Balinoptera musculus or sulfur bottom whale and the Rhinodon typicus or whale shark. Neither of these monsters of the deep have any teeth. They feed in an interesting way by opening their enormous mouths, submerging their lower jaw, and rushing through the water at terrific speed. After straining out the water, they swallow whatever is left. A sulfur-bottomed whale, 100 feet long, was captured off Cape Cod in 1933. His mouth was 10 or 12 feet wide. So big, he could easily have swallowed a horse. These whales have four to six compartments in their stomachs, in any one of which a colony of men could find free lodging. They might even have a choice of rooms. 
For in the head of this whale is a wonderful air storage chamber, an enlargement of the nasal sinus, often measuring seven feet high, seven feet wide by 14 feet long. If he has an unwelcome guest on board who gives him a headache, the whale swims to the nearest land and gets rid of the offenders he did Jonah. Now, here is another example that Miss Kellogg gives. The Cleveland Plain Dealer recently quoted an article by Dr. Ransom Harvey who said that a dog was lost overboard from a ship. It was found in the head of a whale six days later, alive and barking. And here's another. Frank Bullin, F-R-G-S, who wrote The Cruise of the Catholic, tells of a shark 15 feet in length, which was found in the stomach of a whale. He says that when dying, the whale ejects the contents of its stomach. And here's another. The late Dr. Dixon stated that in a museum at Beirut, there is the head of a whale shark big enough to swallow the largest man that history records. He also tells of a white shark of the Mediterranean which swallowed a whole horse. Another swallowed a reindeer minus only its horns. In still another, Mediterranean white shark was found a whole sea cow about the size of an ox. These facts show that Jonah could have been swallowed by either a whale or a shark. But has any other man beside Jonah been swallowed and lived to tell the tale? We know of two such instances. Now listen to this. The famous French scientist, Monsieur de Parville, writes of James Bartley, who in the region of the Falcon Islands near South America was supposed to have been drowned at sea. Two days after his disappearance, the sailors made a catch of a whale. When it was cut up, much to their surprise, they found their missing friend alive but unconscious inside the whale. He revived and has been enjoying the best of health ever since his adventure. Now, here's the other. Dr. Harry Rimmer, and I knew Dr. Rimmer well, president of the Research Science Bureau of Los Angeles, writes of another case. In the Literary Digest, we noticed an account of an English sailor who was swallowed by a gigantic rhinodon in the English Channel. Briefly, the account stated that in the attempt to harpoon one of these monstrous sharks, this sailor fell overboard, and before he could be picked up again, the shark turned and engulfed him. Forty-eight hours after the accident occurred, the fish was sighted and slain. When the shark was opened by the sailors, they were amazed to find the man unconscious but alive. He was rushed to the hospital where he was found to be suffering from shock alone, and a few hours later was discharged as being physically fit. The account concluded by saying that the man was on exhibit in a London museum at a shilling admittance fee, being advertised as the Jonah of the 20th century. In 1926, Dr. Rimmer met this man and writes that his physical appearance was odd. His body was devoid of hair, and patches of yellowish-brown color covered his entire skin. If two men could exist for two days and nights inside of marine monsters, could not a prophet of God, under his direct care and protection, stand the experience a day and a night longer? So why should we doubt God's Word? Now, may I say that that demonstrates the fact that a man could live. But the thing that it does, it takes away from the unusual character of Jonah's experience. That is, if these men live and Jonah lived, then you have several instances, and there may be others, and I'm told that there are other records of men who've lived have been swallowed by fish, so that what you have is a record not really of a great miracle. You have a record of an unusual instance, an incident that took place. Now, I personally believe that the greater miracle is the fact that God raised him from the dead.
Now I return back to our text. And again, I remind you, the question before us is not whether God could make a man live for three days and three nights inside of a fish. The question is, did God do that? Is that what the record says? Now, let's look again at the text, and I'm going to pick up at chapter 2 at verse 2. Now, listen to him. And I said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. God heard him. How? Out of the belly of the grave, Sheol. Jonah called the belly of the fish his grave. He said, cried I, and thou heardest my voice. Now will you listen? For thou hadst cast me into the deep, in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about. All thy billows and thy waves passed over me. May I say that you can't treat that lightly. You need to recognize that this man not only lived in a fish, but if he lived, he lived like a fish because he was swamped by water. He says, the floods compass me about. All thy billows and thy waves passed over me. In other words, Jonah's saying, I got wet. And I think that it's all wet to try to say that the man lived three days and three nights. I personally think that the devil gets us off arguing about that when we miss the great truth of resurrection that is here. Now, will you notice, he says again, verse Then I said, I'm cast out of thy sight. That's death. Yet I will look again toward thine holy temple. He believed he'd be raised from the dead. He had been brought up on the Old Testament. And I think this means many things. I think it means, first of all, that Jonah was one of the many in the north who were faithful, who went down to Jerusalem to worship down there at the temple, for they knew that was the place to worship the living and true God. And he says, I'm going to look again at that holy temple. God will raise me up again. Now, verse 5. Now, listen to this. Does this sound to you like a man is alive? He says, the waters compass me about, even to the soul. He's saying, I got drenched. The depth closed me round about, the weeds were wrapped about my head. Now, this sea monster had been eating a bunch of seaweeds. And if you know anything about them, I pull them out along the Pacific coast here. Some of them are 25 feet long. And this monster had his tummy full of these. And Jonah says, well, I was down there and I got these things all wrapped around my head. Now, do you think the man's describing the fact that he's having a very nice weekend inside of a fish? I don't think so. I think that he's trying to tell us that he went down to the very depths and he's dead. I went down, listen to him, to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with its bars was about me forever. Now, this is a very interesting translation Because this is in Elizabethan English, back in Shakespeare's day. You will remember that Hamlet speaks of the fact when he saw his father's ghost that the grave hath oped its bars. And that was the way death was spoken of. For its bars was about me forever. What kind of bars, Jonah? Death, of course. That's what he's talking about. And that's the meaning of this translation. For its bars was about me forever. Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption. Now, you remember when Peter on the day of Pentecost brought that message. He says, now, the psalmist says that he would not see corruption. He says, now we all know that David wasn't speaking of himself because his grave is up yonder and he saw corruption. That's death, friends. And the miracle about the Lord Jesus is that when he died, he did not see corruption. That body did not corrupt. 
And that was the difference. And that's the difference between Jonah's experience and our Lord's experience. That Jonah's body actually, in the three days and three nights, began to decay. Rigor mortis set in. And he says, you brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. I think this man's talking about being raised from the dead. May I say to you, I think it's rather important that we have a book in the Old Testament that teaches the resurrection of Christ. That is important, very important. That is one of the main pillars of our salvation. There are two pillars, and the ark of the church rests upon it, the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And they both are taught in the Old Testament. And this book teaches his resurrection. Now, I want you to notice what else he says here, verse 7. He says, When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came in unto thee into thine holy temple. Now, he says that he fainted in the fish, so that my position would be something like this. I think this would be a normal explanation. I think when this man was swallowed by that fish, he was frightened. And he began immediately to call out to God to deliver him. And then he found himself going down the esophagus of that fish, and he drops kaplunk in the tummy of the fish. And if there's one of these that had four tummies, I don't know which one he dropped into, but he dropped into one. And he lived for several minutes there, and he said that his soul fainted within him. And you can well understand that. It must have been at least five minutes before he had lapsed into unconsciousness. And before he did, he said, I remembered the Lord. This is when he prayed his prayer. Don't try to tell me that he prayed his prayer on the third day after he'd spent three days in there under conviction and soul-searching. His soul got wet, he says, and that now his soul fainted within him. That means that he lost consciousness inside of the fish. So he had to pray this prayer. And he says, "'My prayer came in unto thee, unto thine holy temple.'" He says, "'Before I lapsed into unconsciousness.'" That was the next step, and then death came to him. Then this man had already prayed his prayer. Now, he makes this observation here, and it's one of the many maxims that you find in the Word of God. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. I have tried to get a good explanation of that verse, and so far, here's another verse that I'm unable to get a satisfactory explanation. So I have to give you mine, and I think you'll probably find it very unsatisfactory. I think this is another one of the great principles. Vanities is emptiness. To observe that which is empty, that which is vain, that which is just a dream that's not going to come to pass, and then a lying emptiness. They forsake the only mercy they can receive. Now, this man Jonah said, at this time, I called out to the living and true God. I no longer was playing the pouting prophet rushing off to Tarshish because I don't like Ninevites, because I actually hate Ninevites and I don't want them saved. And so I'm rushing off in the opposite direction. He says, now... I'm dealing with reality. I'm getting right down to the nitty-gritty. And friends, there was a whole lot of nitty-gritty inside that fish. And this man says, I'm getting right down to business with God. And I appealed to him to his mercy. And I found out he was merciful to me. And he cried out to God. Now, he then shows his gratitude by saying this, verse 9. He says, but I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. And friends, I don't suppose that you and I could possibly conceive of the thanksgiving that was in that man's heart and life 
when the fish vomited him out on the dry land, and he was a mess at that time. But I tell you, he lifted his voice in thanksgiving to God for having delivered him and raised him from the dead. But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. Do you know what his vow was? Can't you imagine what it was? He said, I'll go to Nineveh. Before he said, I won't go to Nineveh. He's changed his mind. God has changed it for him. And he now makes a vow. He said, Lord, I'll go to Nineveh. And you know, the Lord has to deal with many of us like that. He never did put me through a fish, but he gave me cancer. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not blaming him for it. He judged me. And then he's chastised me since then, because I thought I'd learn all the lessons that an old man ought to learn, but I found out I hadn't learned them. And I am prepared to say the same thing. I can be thankful to him for what he's permitted to come to me and then to deliver me from it. And I've made vows to God. I've promised him that I give the rest of my life to just giving out the Word of God. And that's the reason I do it the way that I do, is because that's what I'm called to do. Someone suggested to me many things to put into the program certain gimmicks, to put into the program music, to do it differently. No, I made a vow to God, and I'm going to keep it, that I'd give out the Word of God the best I know how. Now, I understand a great many people that find fault and don't like the way I do it, and I'm not entirely satisfied. I wish I could do it better. But, friends, that's the vow. And I know the vow this man made. He said, I'm going to Nineveh, Lord, and I'm going to do what you want me to do. Now, will you notice the statement that I've already called attention to? salvation is of the Lord. Now, that's the latter part of verse 9 here. Now, again, in my judgment, in my book, I would say that this is the most important statement that you find in the book of Jonah. And that is something, again, that I think is very, very important. Now, will you notice here, I will pay that that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. That's deliverance. Now, there's several things about this that we need to know. Salvation, friends, is God's work for us. Salvation is never man's work for God. You see, God cannot save us by our works, because the only thing that we can present to him is imperfection. And God just does not accept imperfection. He won't do that. You have to present to him perfection. And that's the only thing that God will accept. Now, you and I are unable to present it. Therefore, if it depended on us or our works, we could never be saved. If it depended on us doing something, to begin with, we're lost sinners, dead in trespasses and sins. And if deliverance is to come, it'll have to come to us just like it came to Jonah, dead and hopeless in that fish. If he's to live, if he's to be used of God, and he is going to be, it's because salvation is of the Lord. And if you ever get saved... It's because salvation is of the Lord. Now, salvation is such a wonderful thing that actually you can put it into three tenses. That's the thing that I have done, and I believe that that's the thing that is very important. May I put it like this? I have been saved, past tense. I am being saved present tense. I shall be saved, future tense. So salvation is God's work from beginning to end. Let me look at that for just a moment scripturally. I have been saved. The Lord Jesus Christ says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that 
heareth my word and believeth on me hath everlasting life. The moment you trust Christ, you have everlasting life. That is something that took place in the past, as far as those of you that are listening to me today that are Christians. Sometime in the past, you trusted Christ. That was all his work. You trusted what he did. He that believeth on the Son hath life. You receive life when you trusted Christ and did nothing, nothing whatsoever. He offered it to you as a gift. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And we can say, I have been saved. How was I saved? By trusting Christ, his work. And it was not by works of righteousness which we've done, but it was according to his mercy. He saved us by the washing of regeneration, renewing of the Holy Spirit. Now, God's not through with us at that time. He intends to work in our lives. And we are told to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God that worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, you can't work it out until somebody's worked it in. You have to have it before you can work it out. And you and I are to work out our salvation. So Paul could say, by grace are ye saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Well, that's great, but he didn't stop there, you see. He kept talking, and the thing that he said was this. He says, for we are his workmanship. His workmanship, yes, created in Christ Jesus, given a new life, born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible of the word of God that liveth and abideth forever, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, so that now by the power of the Holy Spirit, the child of God is to produce fruit. In fact, he says, I want you to bring forth much fruit. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Well, the fruit of the Spirit, Paul says in Galatians, is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, etc., etc. All of those marvelous, wonderful graces are his work, but he wants to work them in you today. And you and I ought to be growing in grace and in the knowledge of Christ. So... I am being saved. I ought to be a better Christian today than I was last year. I get a little discouraged in that field because sometimes I think I'm like the proverbial cat that climbed up uh, three feet on a pole in the daytime and then slipped back five at night. I feel like that I don't get very far. But nevertheless, I trust there has been some growth. Now... Salvation is of the Lord. I will be saved. There is coming a day when I will be saved. You remember that Paul said to that young preacher, Timothy, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Then he kept talking about that wonderful fact of the Word of God, that it's able to make you wise unto salvation. Well, what did he mean that it's able to make you wise unto salvation? Well, when Timothy was already saved from our viewpoint, it would enable him to grow. It would enable him to live for God, as we've indicated. But you see, even when we come to the end of life, we are not complete. Even Dwight L. Moody, that great evangelist, do you remember? He said, when I was a boy... I heard Henry Varley, an unknown preacher at that time, and he was sitting in the balcony. He heard him say, God has yet to see what God can do with a man that is fully yielded to him. And Dwight L. Moody, a young fellow at that time, he says, by the grace of God, I'll be that man. And when Dwight L. Moody was dying, he said, when I was a boy, 
I heard Henry Varley say that God has yet to see what God can do with a man that's fully yielded to him. He said, I wanted to be that man. But it's still true that the world has yet to see what God can do with a man that's fully yielded to him. And I'm of the opinion that when you and I get to the end of life, it'll still be true of you and me that it can still be said the world is yet to see. One completely yielded to God. So don't be discouraged with me if you are, and I guess some of you are, and I won't be discouraged with you because, beloved, it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We're going to see him someday. And then we're going to be like him. Until then, I'll probably be very unlike him. Maybe you will make it. I don't think I will. But in that day, I'll be like him. And at that time, you're going to be delighted with me, friends. You're really going to love me. And that's one of the things that's going to make heaven so wonderful. You know what it is? It's not that I'm going to love everybody, and I think that's true, but... Everybody's going to love me. <laughs> not going to be wonderful when you get to heaven because you're going to be that kind of person. I say, this is a wonderful statement. Salvation is of the Lord. That's back in the Old Testament. It's in the book of Jonah. And you know where a man learned that? He learned that when he was swallowed by a fish and then when he was vomited out by he could make this statement. Now, will you notice verse 10? And the Lord spoke unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. And friends, I can't resist making this corny statement. It just proves that you can't keep a good man down. Even the fish couldn't. And someone else has put it like this, that even a fish couldn't digest Jonah a backsliding prophet. But he's a different man now. He's made some vows to God, and one of them is he's going to Nineveh. His ticket is to Nineveh.